Okay, great. All right, grab a seat. Some people have some people have already given me a hard time because I gave a test on Sunday morning, but I hope you'll forgive me for that. Um, we've been in this series talking about the story we find ourselves in. And in this series, we've been talking about this reality that we live in a world that often tells us one story, but God has another story, perhaps a true story that we find ourselves in. And so we've been walking through this. The first week we talked a little bit about, um, about who we are, and then last week we talked a lot about courage and what it means to, to be a leaper, to take the jump, to follow. And today we're going to talk about a little bit larger picture about some things that we see happening in the larger world, and then, um, and then next week you'll just have to wait and see. So can you go ahead and get me to my... Right now, it'd be great. Okay, so um, if you have your Bibles, I want to invite you to turn with me to Judges, if you have it, chapter 6. And we're going to start right here in the story of Gideon. Some of you know this story, some of you don't, but we're going to start right here and, and kind of start here, and then, and then we'll kind of see where we go. So I'm just going to read um, from Gideon, chapter 6, verse 1, and then we'll, we'll kind of progress through. The Israelites did evil in the Lord's sight, so the Lord handed them over to the Midianites for seven years. The Midianites were so cruel that the Israelites made hiding places for themselves in the mountains, caves, and strongholds. Whenever the Israelites planted their crops, marauders from Midian, Amalek, and people of the east would attack Israel, camping in the land, destroying crops as far away as Gaza. So in other words, any, any place you could see. They left the Israelites with nothing to eat taking all the sheep, goats, cattle, and donkeys. These enemy hordes, coming with their livestock and tents, were as thick as locusts. They arrived on droves of camels, too numerous to count, and they stayed until the land was stripped bare. So Israel was reduced to starvation by the Midianites. And then the Israelites cried out to the Lord for help. So the picture is that Israel has turned away from God, and and God's kind of let them go their way. And so, of course, when, when we go our way instead of God's way, it never works out well. And so... All these people are coming into the land just anytime they try to grow anything, do anything good, other people come in and take it away from them. And so then it says, when they cried out to the Lord because of Midian, the Lord sent a prophet to the Israelites. He said, this is what the Lord, the God of Israel says. I brought you out of slavery in Egypt. I rescued you from the Egyptians and from all who oppressed you. I drove out your enemies, gave you their land. I told you, I am the Lord your God. You must not worship the gods of the Amorites in whose land you now live. But you have not listened to me. Then the angel of the Lord came and sat beneath the great tree of Ophrah, not Oprah, but Ophrah, <laughs> which belonged to Joash of the clan of Ebiezer. Gideon, son of Joash, was threshing wheat at the bottom of a wine press to hide the grain from the Midianites. Now I just want to pause right here, point out something that's really important. Gideon is threshing wheat. Now, do you know anything about threshing wheat? Anybody grow up on a farm where you thresh wheat? Anybody? Okay, so when you thresh wheat, what you're trying to do is get the kernels of wheat and everything else you want to blow away. So typically when you do this, you do this where the wind can blow the the chaff, the leftover stuff away, okay? But he's hiding in a wine press, okay? He's hiding. He's doing this in hiding. Why? Because we know what happens. If he were to do it outside, people would see him. Other people would come in and take his stuff, okay? So he's hiding. Then the angel of the Lord appeared to him and said, I love this, mighty hero, 
The Lord is with you. Sir, Gideon replied, if the Lord is with us, why has all this happened to us? And where are all the miracles our ancestors told us about? Didn't they say the Lord brought us up out of Egypt? But now the Lord has abandoned us and handed us over to the Midianites. Then the Lord turned to him and said, Go with the strength you have and rescue Israel from the Midianites. I am sending you. But Lord, Gideon replied, How can I rescue Israel? My clan is the weakest in the whole tribe of Manasseh, and I am the least in my entire family. The Lord said to him, I will be with you, and you will destroy the Midianites as if you were fighting against one man. Now, I'm going to come back to that in just a minute, but I want to focus in on one little part of this. So they wasted the land as they came in. Thus Israel was greatly impoverished because of Midian. And the Israelites cried out to the Lord for help. Stay with me. So one of the realities that we face in this world is, I don't know if you watch the news. I have this, um, I don't know if you know you can do this, but I have this little alert set up on my phone. Every week... On Wednesday at 9 p.m., I get this email from Google. You can ask Google to send you emails. And it's just all the the top 10 headlines about youth or teenagers or adolescents in the news from that week. Okay? Whatever they are, it just, it gives me those top 10. This is sobering things, right? Like, most of this, uh, I celebrate, I do a little dance in my heart. If every once in a while, one of those is a positive story. Almost always those stories are negative, right? Things that are bad, things that aren't happening, things that aren't good. Teenagers have done this. They have a new reports out about this. Pregnancies up. Drugs are up. Whatever, right? All these kinds of things. We hear these stories all the time. And oftentimes, I think, in the church and in families, we feel like this. That maybe the land that we have been a part of has been destroyed. There's not much there. We feel like this. This is a great picture, right? (laughs) And by the way, we aren't the sumo, right? We often feel like this child, right? Faced against this army of stuff, right? And have, have you watched TV lately? Like, how are teenagers portrayed on television or in the movies or in the media? All the time. Families are always the little guy, right? This is how we often feel. I'm going to give you some stats and and walk through some background here, and then we'll kind of talk about this. So one of the things that happened, a group of pediatricians, child psychologists, um, and medical researchers, um, mostly around the New York City area, got together, and they said, we have a problem. We recognize we have a problem. They got together, and they said, we need to study what's going on with our children and our youth. And one of the things that they recognized is there a significant deterioration in the overall health of young people? No one's, I don't think, surprised by this. But they, they saw this kind of in each of their practices, and they got some of the top people together they could, and they did this study. You can look it up online if you want. It's called Hardwired to Connect. It's kind of interesting. But one of the things they discovered was when they looked at young people's both mental and behavioral health, it's going like this. Despite the fact that the way we're treating people with medications, psychotherapies, etc., has gone way up. In other words, young people have more medical attention than they've probably ever had in the history of the world. But yet, the overall health of young people is going way down. Okay? This is a problem. And so they said, well, what, what can we do about this? What's going on? Well, one of the things they recognize is that for young people, there are no connections. 
In today's world, for most young people, stay with me, this will go somewhere. There are no connections. So let me walk through this just for a second. In even 1950, we'll just back up to that, like 65 years ago or so, most people in the United States lived in a very rural environment, right? That means they lived on farms and places like that. Today, most young people live in an urban or more urban environment. I don't know if you know this, but just five years ago, for the first time in the history of the world, more people live in cities than don't. Okay? So this is a massive shift in our world. And so lots of people live in more urban settings. On the, in a rural setting, most young people had lots of great basic training for life, in part because they had to do things, right? They had, okay, so this is a real story. I love this story. Carol knows the story really well. So there was a young lady who was part of our youth ministry in one of the churches I served in. She was the youngest daughter in a family of five, and all four of her older siblings were brothers, okay? So she, she did a lot of work around the house. And she, she knew how to cook, she knew how to clean, she, all this stuff, okay? Another young man in our church was the oldest boy, a very, very affluent family, right? And so we're on this youth trip, and we were asking the kids to help with the meals. And so their job that night was to make hamburgers, okay? Very difficult task to make hamburgers. And so they went to the refrigerator, and, and she starts doing all this stuff and getting the kitchen ready, doing all these things, and she says, okay, Josh, all I need you to do, his name is Josh, Josh, all I need you to do is get in the refrigerator and get the hamburger out. He opens the refrigerator door, and he goes, uh, we have a problem. She goes, what's the problem? I don't see any hamburgers in here. And she goes, she goes over and she goes, look at that big package of meat. That's hamburger meat. What are you talking about? He goes, well, how do you get them into patties? <laughs> like, he had never, ever seen hamburger not already pre-made into patties, right? No basic training for life, right? And you probably know this. Like, if you work with young people or hang out with young people at all, lots of young people don't know basic things like where the fork goes, to hold the door, not to swear in front of people, right? All those right? things are just basic things. Oh, wait, that's adults too. Never mind. Uh, <clears throat> now, young people, almost no basic training for life. On the farm, you grew up learning those things because every day you were counted on to do those things, and it was an expectation. You learned it from watching the adults you live with. Okay, let me keep talking here. Uh, in a rural setting, you had consistent role models. And did anybody grow up on a farm? I'm just curious. Anybody grow up on a farm? <laughs> Sort of-ish, okay? Typically in a farm setting, and I don't know if this is true, I think it is for you, Paul, and I don't know about for you, uh, but one of the things that happens is usually you have a big family, and usually nearby are uncles and aunts and grandmas and grandpas, and their farmers right down the road and things like And so you have these people in your life that are consistent adults who are always in your life. So my mom grew up on a farm, and so it was no big deal, okay, on her farm, you know, right across the kind of pasture, down the road a mile or two, was another farm, and guess who lived there, right? Her, her actually older brother lived there, who's 17 years older, and he had a farm. And, 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 like, these people were just around and in her life. Today, no surprise, very conflicting role models. So we say sometimes our teachers need to be role models, or we talk like that, but one of the problems, of course, is that some teachers have different values than others. And then, so you learn from this teacher who says one thing, okay? Some of my kids have had a teacher who is known to use profanity in the classroom, okay? He has a certain value set that's there, right? 
And then maybe they go to practice if they play sports, or maybe they're part of a band or something else. And that role model maybe has other morals or other values that's, that are different. And then they go home, and those morals or values that... And so they have these, all these kind of conflicting images that are going on. In, in 1950-ish, there was almost no peer group. In other words, you might have gone to high school or, or school for part of the day, maybe even the whole day, but you didn't hang out with those kids outside of school. You didn't spend a lot of time with them, maybe some. But by and large, in a rural setting, you go home and you spend time with adults, your family, right? People like that. So now there's a huge emphasis on peer group. In fact, some people have talked about this problem, part of the problem in our culture with adolescents in particular, starting at about age 11 or 12, is that we just take young people and we say, we don't really know what to do with you, so we're going to put you all over here, and you go live your life and do your world thing, and when you get older, then we'll deal with you again. We treat them like aliens, right? Have you heard people talk that way? Okay. And so now the emphasis is, okay, you go do your things over there, we'll do our things over here. And so the emphasis a lot is this, you, we expect them to spend all their time with each other. Um, in a rural setting, there's a very low level of information. In other words, what you knew about the world, the things you knew, typically came through your family. You could not, like you can today, have this high level of information where you can go on the internet and you can, and most young people today have smartphones, right? And they can go in the privacy of their room and they can look up anything they want. Literally, anything they want. And often they do, right? You can ask them if you don't believe me. Okay, so this high, high level of information that they get to kind of filter and work with, okay? In a rural setting, very many intergenerational associations, I've talked about that a little bit already, and now almost no intergenerational associations. I literally know young people who know no one, literally they know no one other than maybe their single parent over the age of 30. They, like, they might know somebody's name who was a grandpa that, you know, at the family reunion that they go to once a year, but they don't really know anybody older. No one, Okay. Just saying, earlier, 1950s-ish, that wasn't the case at all. In fact, most of the people you knew were older than you or younger than you. And then something really important. Then, in that setting, you have very little anonymity. In other words, okay, and some of you have lived this, if you acted up, even if your parents weren't around, somebody saw you and somebody told your parents, right? Or maybe, maybe if you were like me, the church I grew up in, my church was kind of my family, and so they had every right, my parent, parents gave them the right, if they felt like I was doing something wrong, to discipline me, right? <laughs> Even if they weren't my parent, it was okay, right? That was okay. So everybody knew who you were. Today, basically nobody knows who anybody is. And we kind of celebrate this in our culture, but I think in many ways this, this has created some of the problems and some of the things that we're facing. So we, we basically see this, if I can just sum it up in a, in a little phrase, that we have basically in our culture systematically abandoned most, most youth, children, and families. We've basically said, we're going to help you get old enough to kind of sustain yourself, and then good luck. Good luck. Good luck with that. You can do it. And then, it's, so it's no wonder when kids get to be about 22, 23 years old and graduate from college, they say, I don't really want to work because I don't even know how to work. And we say, well, why not? Come on, go work. 
Well, because you've never asked them to. They've never seen it. They don't know what that looks like, okay? And so this is kind of the world we're, we're finding ourselves in. Let me talk a little bit more about this and what this means for the church a little bit. Some, some very real statistics, and I'll be, I'll be quick here, and you'll get the idea as I walk through these. In 2006, uh, Barna Group did this study revealing 61% of young adults who had been churched at one point in their teens are no longer, 61%. Let me keep going. 2006 Gallup poll showed that 40% of young adults who had attended church when they were 16 or 17 are no longer attending. Okay? This was 2006. 2007, Lifeway, which is a Baptist group, studied, uh, they revealed that 65% of Protestant students who attended church regularly for at least a year will stop attending church for at least a year during their college age years. 65%. Data published in 2009 from the National Study of Youth and Religion showed a 30% decrease in weekly or more religious service attendance across multiple Protestant denominations among young people. And then in 2011, Fuller Youth Institute compiled all, did a compilation of research, including some of their own, and estimate that between 40 and 50% of high school graduates will fail to stick with their faith. So if you know, let's just say we have 10, we have some teenagers in here, we probably have 10. Let's just say half of them will be gone from faith once they graduate high school. Is that okay? Is that okay? No. We've got to struggle with that, I think. So they ask, why is this? I'm going to use some really big words, and this will be really quick, but I'm going to describe this. And, and so basically, in, in their studies, they ask teenagers, what is it that you actually believe? And they came up with this term, moralistic therapeutic deism. I'm going to describe their five big basic things here. And then I'm going to ask you, I really want to, we're going to have a little conversation in the middle of this, what you see as maybe some problems with this. Number one, a God exists who created the world and watches over life on earth. Number two, God wants people to be good, nice, and fair to each other as taught in the Bible and by most world religions. Number three, the central goal of life is to be happy and to feel good about oneself. Number four, God is not involved in my life except when I need God to resolve a problem. And number five, good people go to heaven when they die. Okay, let's talk about this. What do you, what do you notice in this list? I'm just curious. Yeah. Well, first off, if you're good, you automatically get to go to heaven. Even okay. If really no human is truly good. You can okay. pretend or put on a facade. Okay. And by the way, in case you don't believe this is true, I had a conversation with a young man uh, about two months ago and uh, we were talking about something that had happened in, in their neighborhood, and he said, well, it's okay, he's going to heaven. He, I know some people who liked him, so I'm sure he's going to heaven. Okay? So it's kind of, yes? So the third one, the, yeah. the uh, central goal uh, of life, mm-hmm. happy to feel good about oneself. Yeah. It's kind of funny to me, because I've actually heard people say that. Yeah. Are you serious? Yeah, okay. Okay, so maybe, okay. Okay, good. Yeah, sometimes life requires what we talked about last week, some sacrifice. Yeah. One through five, ain't no Jesus. Yeah, great. So in case, in case you didn't notice, like some of these things actually are, are good. I mean, we want people to be good and nice, but there's no Jesus here at all. In fact, this, this is chilling to me, and I'll just I'll move on after I say this, but this is chilling to me. That in this, this huge study they did, National Study of Youth and Religion, the largest ever study of adolescent spirituality, they asked thousands of teenagers, they interviewed thousands of teenagers all over the United States about their faith. And most of the time, students were very articulate in talking about 
their life, about their health, about their issues, about all those things. But most of the time when they would ask them, well, tell me what it is you believe about Jesus. This was the response they got. Um, he's really important. Okay. Big, some big problems. So I'm just trying to name a little bit here for us part of what we see happening in our country. So I don't know about you, but I think it's easy when we look around and we see these stats and we see what's happening, I think sometimes at least the way the media portrays things are happening, to feel like this, pretty abandoned, pretty let down. My friend, he, he saw these studies. He was a youth pastor at a church, and he said, you know what, I don't believe these studies are true. I don't think they're true, at least of my church. He's at a really large church, very successful youth ministry for a long, long time. And so he went and he tracked down. He actually went, found the rosters from, de- from 10 years ago, from five years ago, tracked all these people down. He did all this work. He studied, studied, studied. He called people. He called relatives. Everybody he could find. And you know what he found? That they're exactly right for his big, successful church and youth ministry. Six out of 10 no longer in faith. And so when we see these things and we hear these things, it's easy to feel like, you know what, maybe, what are we doing here, right? So they wasted the land as they came in. Doesn't it feel like sometimes we've just lost as families? I have a friend who says, we don't live in a post-whatever-you-want-to-call-it world. You know what we live in? We live in a post-family world. And in many ways, I think he's right. But... We find ourselves in a story that I think is bigger than just what maybe some statistics tell us. In fact, it's interesting what some of these studies found that are, that's really important. The Lord says to Gideon in the story, I will be with you. I'm going to come back to that phrase in just a minute. So what's needed in our particular time and place? Well, one of the things, I mentioned this study right at the beginning of these pediatricians and child psychologists and all these people who came together. And one of the things they they said, you know what the world needs is authoritative communities. That was their phrase, okay? And here's what they talked about. What we need is places where generations can come together and spend time together, where older generations will share with younger generations values and morals. What we need are more places where, where... Older people will invest in the lives of young people, not just, in, not just once a week, but really care about them. Now, what does that sound like they're describing to you? Church, right? Yeah, and in fact, one of the things they said was, what we need is churches. We need better churches, okay? This is not a religious study in any way. They care nothing about faith. They just said there's problems in the world, and this is what they discovered is desperately needed authoritative communities. I have this picture of elephants up here for a reason. So there's a national game park in South Africa called Kruger. Has anybody ever heard of this or been there? Kruger Kruger National, Carol's Ben, I know. Anybody else? Okay, there you can see some of the the big five, right? Is it the big five? Like you see lions and rhinoceroses and cheetahs and I can't remember all of them, elephants and something else, but all these things living in their native habitat, okay? Well, it's a big national, this big game park, okay? And they have elephants there. And perhaps you've seen on the news or something, poaching is a big problem, right? Where people come in and kill the, especially the, the older male elephants who have the long tusks because they want the ivory, okay? 
Well, this one part, I don't know if you know anything about elephants. Elephants are very relational. They're, in fact, they relate to each other much like people do. In fact, they study them sometimes sociologically to kind of figure out how people might react to situations. And so this one area, this one gang is what they call them, a family of elephants, all the males were killed off. And so what happened was these young males in the, in the tribe and the family started to grow up. And when they got to be teenagers, they started doing something that was really interesting. The rangers had no idea what to do with this. They started picking on other animals for no reason, just for fun. They started destroying things for no reason. They started hunting down people and hurting, and sometimes they even killed some people for no reason, just for sport. Elephants do not do this. Okay? The rangers were totally baffled. They had no idea. They, they tried all kinds of different intervention measures. None of it worked. And finally, this older ranger from another part of the park came, came and he said, I know exactly what you need to do. And so they did what he suggested because they were desperate. So they went and they found, they had some uh, adult male elephants they were getting to re-release into the wild from a zoo. And so he said, you need to take these males and you need to introduce them to this tribe, to this family of elephants. And so they did. They took these older males and they introduced him to this tribe. And this is what's fascinating. Almost immediately, you know what the male elephants started doing to the teenage bullies? They started whooping some butt. (laughs) Discipline came. And elephant discipline is not nice, okay? (laughs) Discipline came, okay? And sure enough, check this out, sure enough, the teenage elephants lined right up. Because part of what we see in just this little story is that I think a lot of what's needed in our particular place and time. That adults who are willing to invest in younger people can make a significant, significant difference. What everybody needs, every single person, as part of their identity to to be healthy is to know that they're significant. In other words, somebody knows my name. If I don't show up, somebody's going to miss me. That's significance. Capability, I need to, or meaning, I need to know that I have a purpose in life. I have something that I'm gifted to do, and I can do that thing. And the third thing is capability. Not only am I gifted and do I have a purpose, but I can do it with some, some level of excellence. I can do it well. One of the things that this study determined was authoritative communities can help young people learn that they are significant, that they have meaning, and that they're capable by allowing them to serve and to work with them alongside them. So let me keep talking here. So part of this is this understanding and realization that mission, the mission of the church, is not just a trip. We talk about mission trips sometimes, but mission is God's mission. In other words, God wants something for our world. Can we say yes to that? Yeah? In fact, what God wants for our world is that everyone would know him, and not just know about him, but know him in a relational way. That's what God's up to. And part of what the church's job is to join in that mission and not see it just as some kind of trip we go on once a year or once every other year, but mission be the part of what all of us as people who are following in the way of Jesus are about. That we would say, I want somehow people older than me, people younger than me, everybody to somehow know who Jesus is. And when we take this on as the church, we step into this authoritative community kind of role. What, one of the things that we've discovered is that relationships, 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 relationships matter. 
One of the things that the, the National Study of Youth and Religion discovered about people who kept their faith from childhood all the way into adulthood was this. They had three significant adult relationships in their lives who cared about faith too, who would have faith conversations with them. Three is not that many. If you have two parents who are Christians, that's two right there. In fact, I had you write down something on your cards, and, and I asked for the number three. You may not all have three. How many of you got three sermons actually written down? Just curious. Okay? A few people, but not most. How many of you got three names written down? Okay? Almost everybody. That's not a coincidence. Do you know that? Because when we invest in people and relationships, it matters, right? It changes things. We can say all the words we want, but investing in people matters. And one of the questions I'll ask of you today, who are you investing in? A couple quick things. Um, I'm going to skip this because time. Okay. What can the church do? Okay. I'm going to say this. And this is so simple, but I cannot tell you how important this is. You ready? Here's your job. Smile. Smile at children and young people. Smile at them. You have no idea, okay? If you ever go to the mall, which I don't know why you would, but if you ever go to the mall, there are teenagers there. I don't know if you've ever paid attention to this, especially if you go at a certain time of day. And if you watch how people react to young people, to teenagers in the mall, this is what they typically do. They check their wallet, right? They walk on the other side of the room, right? They go the other way around, okay? They don't look at them because they don't want them to catch anything, right? You would be, if you actually watch, you'll be surprised at how sort of vilified young people often are in culture. If all you do is just smile at them, like even, even if you say, I'm not going to the mall and I'm not going to look at teenagers, even when you're here, if you see a child or a young person, smile at them. You will be shocked at the difference that makes. Okay? Really easy, but so important. Uh, second thing, learn their name. Hi, my name is, what's your name? Is it hard? No. Can you do it? Yes. Are you intimidated by children and young people? Maybe, but that's okay. Do it anyway, okay? If I read the Bible correctly, and I think I do on this, Paul is really clear. The people who are the most mature should be the ones who flex the most, who bend the most, who are willing to be the most uncomfortable in situations. I'm going to say something that's going to hurt just a little, but I'm not preaching for too much longer, so you can. (laughs) You don't like the music? So what? If young people care, then that's who, then who needs to flex? Me or them? Because I can tell you how they're going to flex. It's right out the door. So learning people's names, learn, just taking that little bit of time to learn who people are makes a world of difference. Uh, allow young people to, to help serve and lead us. Learn from you. Ask them a question. You ready for this? This is a hard question to ask, but a really important one. So tell me, what's God been doing in your life lately? Sometimes young people say, uh, nothing. Why are you asking me that? But sometimes they'll tell you. And I don't know if you believe this. I know you're going to put words to this, but I'm going to ask you just a deep question in your heart. Do you really believe that God speaks to young people? Yes. He, ha- he has in Scripture, that's for sure. 
But we often act like he doesn't start talking to people until they're adults. Because we don't actually make space to listen. Thankfully, I think in this church we do. Um, This is a picture of a family at a table. How many of you grew up at Thanksgiving and Christmas where you had the children's table? You know what I'm talking about? You have the kids' table, right? How many of you still sit at that table? No, I'm just kidding. (laughs) I'm going to challenge you to do something in your homes and even at generations when we get everybody together. Don't have a children's table. Do you know what kids miss out on when we put them in a room all by themselves so they can, you know, give the little kid in the room all the vegetables on their plate or whatever? (laughs) You know what they miss out on? All those stories and conversations from older people about what happens in life. Now, I'm not saying kids shouldn't spend time by themselves sometimes. That's absolutely appropriate and fine. And adults sometimes need to have adult conversations. I get that. But there's something about sitting around a table eating together and hearing about Uncle Johnny, and even if he's the nutso Uncle Johnny, about hearing his story and laughing with everybody else about it. And, right? and there's something about hearing Aunt Ida say something about, you know what, it's crazy, crazy. And then all of a sudden she starts talking about how, how much she loves Jesus and how much she's trusted him in her life. Right? There's something that happens in those moments. So I'm going to encourage you to find spaces to, to do things together like that. Make it safe. Make, make churches and places like this safe. Part of that is some of the things I talked about. Um, pray, 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 pray for families. One of the reasons we love Generations is because we feel like this place embraces this very much. But we want to encourage you to pray for your family, but also other families. Pray for young people. If you learn a kid's name that week, just pray for them that week. Just once or twice. Just pray for them. You may not know anything about them. Dear God, help Jared. He's tall. His dad drug him up in front last week. Be with him. I mean, you may not know, but just make an effort. Pray, 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 pray. Listen, 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 listen. Ask them, how is your week? Ask children those kinds of things. I think something important happens there. And then be willing to do some things together. Do you know what young people, children, and youth, you know what they typically like to do with you? You ready? Whatever you're doing. In fact, you remember I talked about how a lot of people today don't learn any skills? Part of it is because we don't think and we don't bring them along so they can see how we do this stuff. My wife has this thing. (laughs) Okay, one of my least favorite things that God has ever placed on earth is grocery shopping, okay? I hate the grocery store. I I hate it. I just dislike it. If you like it, good for you. I'm sorry, but I don't. My wife will invite, especially middle school girls, to come with her grocery shopping, and they will come. Like she used to, when we had babies, she had like, like, you know, carts full of babies and then all these middle school girls, and and they loved it, right? To me, that's like hell, right? But they loved it, right? Whatever it is, right? Whatever it is that you do, just call a young person and invite them to come with you. Have them come with you when you change the oil on your car. Have them come with you and hang out with you when you rake leaves or when you serve the lady down the street who needs a little help with some. Whatever it is, invite them to come along with you and do something with you. Here's the thing. It takes courage, as we talked about last week, to make a difference. It takes courage to live a life of hope. It takes courage to live a life that will invest in somebody else. But you know what? Like this says, who do you go with? Who's, who's sending you? 
God is. And he will be with you. Right? This matters. This matters. If you're a teen or maybe a child in here today, I want to I encourage you a couple things. One, find an older person and ask them about their story. Tell me about your faith story. And listen. It's amazing what you'll hear. Okay? Don't be afraid if people start smiling at you a little extra because of today. Um, but I wonder in here today, I wonder if maybe some of us would ask the question, God, could you use me maybe to serve in children's ministry or to serve in youth ministry or, or maybe just to invest in one young man or one young lady? We're not having a sign-up sheet go around. I'm not doing any kind of altar call or anything. I, here's your response. The invitation is to action, okay? That's the invitation. Will you do something about this? We live in a world that tells us, the story that the predominant culture tells us is you don't have a chance. But can I say to you that you go with God, yes? And in that, you have a chance. Let me pray, and then I want you to see a little video. Let's pray together. God, thank you for today, for all you give us. Thank you for uh, the fact that even though it feels oftentimes like we, like in the story of Gideon, that everything is stacked against us and that you've just kind of, the land is just laid bare, that families don't have a chance, that young people don't have a chance, that, that keeping faith is, is impossible. God, we, we believe that there's a different story that you've called us all to be a part of. I know not everybody in here is called to work with children or youth on an everyday basis, but I also know that you call us as a community to, 